This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Okay, so we're last for me in the series of, uh, about David, and uh, uh, it's a bit of a scary one, so um, yeah, hold on to your hats. Or actually, as Paul said, take off your hats, wasn't it, I think? Take off your hats. Yeah, I don't know if you've um, heard of the book or the concept or the idea of, uh, called The Tipping Point. Uh, it's a book called, uh, by a guy called Malcolm Gladwell, where he talks about how small things, little actions, have big impacts. And actually, really, it's, it's not so much just one little small action has a massive impact, although there is a theory that if a butterfly flaps its wings somewhere, you can create a hurricane somewhere else. But more the fact it's just the, the weight of, of little things have a big impact. And actually, in church, that's true. It's true in a really positive sense. I think sometimes as a church... And as a startup church like we are, you can feel like, when are we going to tip? Yeah, so sometimes as a church you can do things and, uh, and you can feel, well, when's it going to tip? When's it going to, when's it, when are we going to get to the tipping point? We've, we've been faithful, we've prayed, uh, we've, we've given, we've served, we've reached out to our friends on coffee mornings. And it feels like, when are we going to tip? But, and you don't really know. The thing about tipping point, you don't really know. But what you have to keep doing is doing the good things, doing the right things, and then it tips. And I believe that we're, we're ready. I've, I, I've done enough church plants, this third one, to know that I believe we're, we're close to a tipping point. You might look around this morning and think, no, we're not. But actually, just keep doing those things. Keep being faithful. Keep praying. Keep coming and doing those things. But actually, what we're going to look at today is actually how negative stuff. If you do uh, lots and lots of negative stuff, if you have a habit or a pattern of behavior that you don't deal with, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to take you down. And that's what we're going to look at today. It's a story that uh, might be familiar to many of you. Let me just read. We've got the PowerPoints on here. Uh, it's, it's in the spring. So we're in 2 Samuel and I think 11, and then we'll touch into 12 later. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One night, David got up from his bed. Sorry, one evening. He'd obviously been in bed all day, I guess. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The men said, she's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. In other words, she's just had her period. And she went back home. The woman conceived and and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. 
So David sent this word to Joab, the general. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was and how the, soldier, uh, how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah, so Uriah left the palace and, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with his master servants and did not go down to his house. Then David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you come, uh, just uh, come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark of God and all Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out and slept on his mat among his master's servants, and he did not go home. So in the morning, David wrote a a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him, so he'll be struck down and die. While Uriah, Joab... Uh, So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of David's men, men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Father, we just pray as we look at our hero David and find, this is shocking stuff. Immorality, deceit, murder, collateral murder. Lord, and we say, how can you say that you love David with all your heart? But Lord, we thank you that this is a a picture on not just David, but a picture on all of us. A picture of how sin, when it's not dealt with, how rebellion against you, when it's not dealt with, how habits, when they're not dealt with, can bring us down. But Lord, it's also a wonderful picture of your grace. So I pray, Lord, that we'd learn, be intentional, Pray we'd make big, strong decisions this morning as a result of it. Amen. So first thing, there's a whole load of stuff in here, um, but the first thing is, it, it, it starts, it says, in spring, at the time when, da- when kings go off to war, David sent out Joab, but uh, David remained in Jerusalem. I, I can almost imagine, that's from 300, the pictures are from 300 this morning, if you like 300, it's a 18, I don't necessarily recommend it, but it's got some good pictures. Um, uh, the... the um, that, that spring was the time when, when, when kings went to war. David had established his kingdom by fighting, uh, uh, fighting against the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Philistines. He's established his kingdom. And, and it was normal that campaigning, and if you play war gaming, campaigning starts in the spring and finishes in the autumn, doesn't it, Jotham? Uh, diplomacy, great game. And um, David, though, in this time he says, no, count me out. Now, I don't know how he played it to Joab. But, but I think there's possibly two, two ways he could have played it. I think one of the ways he could have played it, he said, well, look, you know, I, it, it's really, really hectic being king. I'm really, really busy. I've got a lot of stuff on my plate. I've got loads of things going down. I, I just can't go at the moment. I just can't go to war at the moment. Uh, and I, I, I'm just, I need to stay in Jerusalem because I'm so busy. Actually, we find out, actually, that, that he wasn't busy. But, but maybe, maybe let's, let's go with that. And I thought about that. I thought, why did the, the sense of David being, I can't go. 
What was on his mind? Why didn't he go? He obviously feels too busy, or he feels a, a rest. And I think what happened is he got his priorities wrong. There's a story that I've used before that you may have heard, heard of uh, by a guy called Stephen Covey who wrote Seven Habits of Effective People. And he talks about a philosophy class. And in the philosophy class, uh, the, the professor, the students came in and he puts on the, the, the table, he puts on uh, some large pebbles, cobbles, you know, I don't know, let's not get too technical about the difference between a cab- pebble and a cobble, but you get large pebbles and then smaller, more rounded pebbles and then sand. And he has a large jar and he took the, um, he took the large pebbles and put them in the jar and filled the jar right up to the top and he asked his class, is the jar full? And obviously the class answered, yes it is. Then he took the uh, smaller uh, pebbles and poured them into the jar, shook the jar around, and the jar, uh, the, the, all the peb- smaller pebbles filled up the jar. And he asked the question, is the jar full? And the students all answered, yes it is. He then took the sand, you know where I'm going with this, he took the sand, poured that in, and shook it around, and he asked the students, is the jar now full? And they then answered, yes it is. And uh, then he took two cups of coffee from under the, uh, or two beers, depends on how you want to write the story, you know, if it's coffee, if you don't like booze, if you like booze, it's two beers. Took two coffees or two beers and poured them into the jars, beers says Josh, poured them into the jars and said, is the other jars now full? And he said that the, 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 the moral of this story is that actually, that if you were to fill the jar with sand first, you'd never get the pebbles in. You'd never get the small pebbles, you'd never get the big pebbles in. And Stephen Covey says that the, 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 the moral of this story is that you need to put the big pebbles in first. And what so often happens is that the small pebbles and the sand fill up our lives. And I think, for, for me, just thinking into David, as I read it, I thought, maybe David starts to fill up his, his jar, starts to fill up his jar with the small pebbles. But actually, David had been a real kind of warrior, a real spiritual warfare guy, and he'd always filled his pebbles with the big stuff. If we've journeyed with David, the thing you realize is that David was a man after God's heart. He wanted to build God's temple. He wanted to build a house for God. He wanted to build a city for God. He wanted to establish a kingdom for God. And those big pebbles were the things that dominated him. Even when he was a 15-year-old boy, when he was a shepherd, he wanted to put those big cobbles in. He put them in. And the other things filled around them. But I think in this moment, we see him doing the other thing. He says, I can't do what's important. Be the king and lead my people in in battle. I'm going to do something else. And actually, in the Christian life, actually, you know, it says, I think it says up there, doesn't it? Spiritual warfare. In the Christian life, we... We have what's called spiritual warfare. And some of you might think spiritual warfare is, is doing kind of exorcisms. That might be part of it. And casting out kind of demons and stuff. But actually, most spiritual warfare is doing the important God first stuff. And I mean that as two words, not one word, God first. That you say, I'm actually putting God first. I'm going to do the God first stuff. And that's most important. And actually, we don't sometimes feel that those are the big pebbles. We sometimes feel the big pebbles is, well, I've got this big pebble called my job and that goes in. I've got this big pebble called my, my tight family and that goes in. And we've, I've got my recreation in my house and we fill it up. And the God pebble tends to, well, is it a big pebble? A small pebble gets put on one side. And uh, David, I think, t- gets his priorities wrong. He puts, he puts in the sand instead of the big pebbles, and he says, look, I'm just too busy. I'm just too busy to go to war. And right at the beginning of this story, it's actually, the problem is one of priorities. That David, David falls because he, his priorities get out of shape. 
And I'm not saying coming to this building on a Sunday morning is the big pebble. I don't think it is. But certainly being involved in what God is doing, being involved in that big battle that we've got to say, let God's, God's good name go to all the nations of the world. That's the big pebble we're in. And if you don't put that big pebble in first, you are never going to get it in. Because everything else will fill it. And so it's a decision sometimes you've got to empty the jar and say, this big pebble of Jesus and his cause, the gospel, we put that in first. And around that you put the other stuff. And David, I think, misses it. David misses it. Stephen Covey said that the professor said, actually, everything else is just sand. Everything else is just sand. And we can so easily fill our lives with just the sand that blows away, that's not important, and we forget to do the, the right things. And I think David's mistake is right there. In fact, I don't quote Socrates very often, but actually, he said this. He said, beware the barrenness of a busy life. It's a great quote, isn't it? Beware the barrenness of a busy life. My life's so full of sand that actually it's just empty, it's just barren. I've said before, I've said here, that if you centre yourself, if you're the centre of your own story, you'll always be exhausted. And I think what was happened for David is that actually God had been the centre of David's story. It was about him and his glory and his fame. And what happened is suddenly David became the centre of his own story. And he filled his life and time with sand. This is what Jesus says about priorities. A bit hard-hitting. Jesus said, said to a man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the, bed, the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, is Jesus saying that I shouldn't have gone to my mom's funeral? Or that I, I, I shouldn't have a relationship with my family? He's not saying that. But actually what he's saying is priorities matter. Get the big pebbles in first. If God is calling you to proclaim the kingdom of God, in other words, to live it and to talk about it, and that's the main thing, that pebble's got to go in first. It's got to go in even before your family funeral. That's what he says. That's what Jesus said. I mean, I wouldn't dare to say that, but that's what Jesus says, isn't it? You're unsure because you think you nod your head. I'll say, ha ha. So I'm not saying don't, <laughs> I'm not saying don't go to family funerals. You need to be at the prayer meeting and not family funerals. No, we're not saying that, but we are saying let's get your pebbles in the right place. Interestingly, I thought the Stephen Covey story is quite interesting because he always says there's space for a cup of coffee. Here's a little test for you to see if you're filling your life with uh, at time when kings go to war, you decide to stay at home. There's always space for a cup of coffee. Now, that doesn't mean for you to have a cup of coffee on your own. I think the test is if you've not got time to have cup of, a cup of coffee with a stranger, a visitor... Do you know what hospitality means? Anyone tell me? Hello. means love of strangers. So when visitors come, or you know somebody who doesn't know Jesus, if you've not got time for a cup of coffee with them, you've got your, your, your life full of too much sand. You need to clear some space. So it's a question. When was the last time you said to somebody who, who, who's not, who doesn't know Jesus, maybe somebody who's a visitor here, and says, well, why don't you come around? Why don't you pop around? When's the last time you said, yeah, come on, let's eat? Because we can always eat together. 
We can always say, yeah, 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 I really like Tom. Come round. It's been a while, Tom, actually. I'm waiting for the invite. No. But, you know, you can say, I really like Tom and Lucy. Let's have time with them. But actually, if there's no space for that cup of coffee with people that are new, then, then we're missing it. So that's the first point. The second thing is, actually, I think David, had, the small things had been gradually building up on David. Um, uh, Terry Virgo writes in his book, Weak People, Mighty God. Excuse me, I thought I should have printed it larger. Um, he says this. David was vulnerable sexually. He took one wife here and another there, effectively accumulating them. Deuteronomy 17, 17 says, the king must not take many wives. But David had never checked his appetite. He concealed a weakness, a volcano, that was seemingly inactive for most of the time, which puffed away occasionally, but seemed basically under control. Yet it was not extinct. It was dormant and dangerous. Sometime it demanded satisfaction, and on this terrible occasion, the whole volcano exploded, marring his life so it never recovered. I watched a really terrible film <laughs> that's out at the moment called Pompeii. <laughs> we, did you watch it with Josh? It was a bad film. Josh is staying with us, and we thought, well, watch this film, watch Pompeii. It's trying to be gladiator, it fails, it's trying to be everything, it doesn't fail. And it's like, you know, the, the thing about the Pompeii film is you kind of know what happens, don't you? Because in the end, the, the volcano's going to... There's no tension. Is the volcano going to explode or not? Yeah, it's going to explode. So there's just this, cha- this ridiculous chasing around while kind of pyroclastic bombs and pyroclastic flows are flowing and they're running faster than them. And then as a geologist, that obviously thinks, well, that, that you've lost me right there. But the thing about it is that, that, you, know that, that you know that Vesuvius is going to explode. But actually, if you go back, what is that at the bottom of the slopes of Vesuvius? You know what it's called? It's not Pompeii, it's... It's Naples, isn't it? Thank you. Naples is there. You'd think they'd think it's not going to explode, that we're going to be good. But it's there, isn't it? You'd think they'd watch the film if they... If you Imagine the Naples cinema. Well, they're all watching and seeing what's happening. They should be thinking... And then they say, no, it's not going to happen to us. Yeah? And that's what Terry, was, Terry Virgo in his book was saying, well, that's what happened to David. He's thinking, well, I've got this smouldering volcano. I've got this little bit of smoke uh, called uh, uh, I Like Women. And uh, it, it doesn't matter if it blows a little bit of smoke, but it's never going to explode on me. But obviously, the thing about you, if you sit on a volcano, you can't control it by this. Once it blows, it blows. And so we say that it was evening... And he got up from bed. My assumption is that he wasn't really busy. He thought he was busy. He was just lazy. He spent the whole day in bed because he should have been doing something productive for God. And he spent the whole day in bed. He spent the whole day on Xbox. He spent the whole day, let me gather a go at someone else. I don't know. He'd spend the whole day watching Sky Sports. Yeah, he'd spend the whole day, I don't know, well, let's choose some ladies, having time on Facebook. He'd spend the whole day doing that. And he said, I'm too busy for God. Have I got anybody else? <laughs> Any more? Yes. <laughs> yeah, and he got up. I think he's just bored. You know, it's not, I don't know if it's in the Bible, but it's true. The devil finds work for idle hands. He's lazy and he's not doing anything. And he says, he saw a woman bathing. Now, usually if you read, as you do. Yes, I was going to have a picture of a woman bathing, but I thought that wouldn't help at all, would it? That really wouldn't help at all. So he said he saw a woman bathing. Now, you can read commentaries about this, and actually Bathsheba, the woman, gets a hard time. Well, what a hussy. Bathing there, right in front of the king's palace, yeah? 
But actually, I, I don't think she, she was aware of that. But actually, the, the, actually, David should have, where should it have ended? Where should this story have ended? There's a little clue there. Where should it have ended? I saw a woman bathing. She was very beautiful. Stop. He ran away. Give me an example of that in the Bible. Joseph, yes, he's a good-looking guy. He's, uh, he's working in a house with a, a woman called Potiphar. She keeps saying, come on, Joseph, go to bed with me. Potiphar's wife, it's not a homosexual thing, thank you. <laughs> yeah, Potiphar's wife, she keeps saying, come on, go to bed with me. And he says, no, no, no. And she grabs him and says, come to bed with me. And she grabs his coat and he runs away. And where does he end up? He ends up in prison, doesn't he? He ends up in jail. But he does the right thing. And eventually God lifts him up to be the... Most second most powerful man in the world. And it's important that we look away, boys. We should have said at that point, look away. Oscar Wilde, when he said this, I can resist everything except temptation. Now you might think that that is true for you, that you can resist everything except temptation. I have had people, mostly guys, but sometimes girls, that, that I've spoken to, not in this church, but in other churches, who've said, I can't resist, I can't resist pornography. It's destroying their marriages, and they say, I just can't resist. Now, if, if you're not a follower of Jesus, that, in fact, is your natural state. Oscar Wilde is very true. You can't resist temptation. But that is not the natural state if you're a Christian. That is not a natural state if you're part of the people of God. This is what Paul says. says if, so if you think you're standing firm, David, Howard, Paul, no, let's not mention names. Uh, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. Josh, <laughs> no temptation has seized you except common to man. This is a fairly common temptation. You just have to drive around, walk around with your eyes open, and you see pictures of, of good-looking women. It's everywhere. Everywhere. Good-looking men as well, increasingly. Not so, but, but, you know, it's, it's, there's no temptation. I left the man in there. It's so often we'll translate it to humanity, but I left it in there. There's no temptation that, that's common to humanity. You see a beautiful woman having a bath, and, she, and, and he says, but God is faithful and will not let you be tempted. Read it with me. Beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide, read it, a way out so you can stand up under it. So this is the equivalent of turn off your computer, turn off your TV, walk away, turn around, close your eyes. This is the, that equivalent. But David doesn't do it. And it's, he's lost it there. Paul says this about dying to sin. Those who have died to sin, this sense of these little habits, these little self, uh, self-satisfying appetites that destroy us, how can we live it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into a death? This is why baptism in water is important. That we were therefore buried with him through baptism, under the water, plunged under the water, that's what baptism means, into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the, from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For we know that our old self, our old habits, our old appetites were crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, killed, so we no longer be slaves to sin. Because Say this with me. Because anyone who's died has been set free from sin. So Christians are those that have died. 
John Wimber famously said, the founder of the vineyard famously said, dead men don't sin. Dead women don't sin. You can wave a thousand pounds in small bills over a, a dead man who is full of greed in his life and he's not going to react. You can take Playboy and open the centerfold of it and over a guy that struggled with lust in his life and he's never going to react when he's dead. And the Bible says that we're dead. We're free. But David was given a way out. He didn't have to go that way. It wasn't that the temptation was too strong to bear, but he went there anyway. So it said, David sent someone to find out about her. Mm, he's suddenly interested. She's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. He sees. He looks again. He asks. He sends for her. He sleeps with her. At any of those points, he could have hit the bail button, but he doesn't. Now, it's interesting because actually, it could have ended there in that sense. No one would have known. He could have just covered it up. Never told his wives. He had at least two by that time. He could have never told anyone. No one could have never known. He could have carried on being king and carried on being the judge of his nation, carried on being the chief worshipper in the gig. No one would have ever known. But actually, it wasn't going to go that way. It says, now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Why is that in there? Because it means that she'd had a period after Uriah had gone to war. So it meant that when things start to unravel, there's only one conclusion. Let's read it. She was pure inside in herself from a monthly uncleanness, and she went back home, and the woman conceived. It's funny how they call her the woman, isn't it? Lust is like that, isn't it? It dehumanizes, depersonalizes. Sin's like that. It's about taking. It's not about people. I've said this before. It just occurred to me now. It's not in my thoughts. But uh, I know people who've uh, so been damaged by, by lust and pornography that have been un- unable to make love to their wives. It's hugely destructive. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Now those words are interesting, aren't they? I am pregnant. They should be what? A source of celebration, shouldn't they? They should be, I'm pregnant! Yeah, we get, we've had a lot of that in church. <laughs> I'm pregnant. Yeah, but actually for David, it's, oh no, you're pregnant! David thinks I'm stuffed here. Everybody knows the baby's mine. Bathsheba knows the baby's mine. What am I going to do? He thinks it's time for a cover-up. I wrote this, it's not a quote, but basically lust and lies, sin and secrecy go hand in hand. Sin and secrecy go hand in hand. And often, you know, the, the secrecy is even worse than the sin. The desire to cover it up is often worse than saying, you know, yes, that's me. If you're in a three in this church and you want to share your life, it's so easy to take that 
cloth, as it were, and cover up the fingerprint trails on the keyboard or click whatever you do and to kind of cover up the trail or just not tell anybody to hide their tax returns. I don't know how you do it, whatever your stuff is. We don't know about sex here, but, you know, it's so easy to do that and just pretend that everything's fine. But actually, for David, this is not going to go away and it's going to take him down. So David's got a plan. He says, Uriah, come home. Go home and sleep with your wife. Uriah's integrity is incredible, isn't it? I'm not going to go home and sleep with my wife when everybody else is fighting for Jesus, when everybody else is doing the God stuff. I'm not going to go home and slack off and just have an easy time. You can do that, David. He's not saying that, but I'm sure David thought, oh, yes. But you can do that, but I'm not going to go home. Because why should I go home? He says, when the ark of God, the presence of God, and Israel and Judah are living in tents, not a Bible week, thankfully, and my commander Joab and the Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go and have an easy time and sit at home and eat and drink and make love to my wife as if there's no war going on? Surely I'll not do such a thing. Uriah's integrity contrasts with David's duplicity, doesn't it? It's almost like, whoa, this is Uriah's a, a Hittite. Hittite is a foreigner. And he's got it. And here's the king and he's missed it. So he sends a message, doesn't he? Put Uriah in the thickest fighting and then pull back. Just hang him out to dry. Put Uriah in the front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him and he'll be struck down and die. A real person died. Sin does that. I'm not saying that you might find yourself in a morgue with a toe tag on, but sin does that. Kills you slowly or kills you quickly. But sin and death go together in the Bible because that's how it is. And when sin is covered, everything is compromised. David is unaccountable. Nobody dare say to him. Nobody dare challenge him. was it his authority that made him unaccountable? You know, one of the worst things, I'm rolling through here, one of the things, worst things is church leaders who who nobody dare ask the question to. You hear, don't you? People in church leadership who do stuff. Bishops, archbishops, priests who are up to no good. Church leaders who fiddle in their money and nobody dare ask them a question. And the authority structures are so strong and hard that if you ask a question, you get a strong pushback. Imagine what it's like with the king then. The baby's born. He marries Bathsheba. And nobody dare say, what happened? What happened? He's unaccountable because he's proud. He puts everything in the file top secret and says, don't you dare ask me. But God's not having it. 2 Samuel, so in the next chapter now, it says, But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan. Remember Nathan? Who's Nathan? Remember? He's the prophet, isn't he? Who brought him that. You're not going to build the temple, but God's going to do this amazing thing for you. He's his mate. He's his three. He's the one he shares, is open with. But not in this case. Nathan's cut out. Actually, I don't really don't want to be in my three. David says, no, I can't make it this week. I'm a bit busy. No, I can't. No, I really don't want. No, no, I'm sorry. I just can't make it. I'm sorry. 
So Nathan's phoning him again and says, look, it's been a month, two, three, four since we met, and David said, well, I am really important and I can't make it. But the Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, I'm sure Nathan's had a think about this. How am I going to tell the king he's a towrag? He says, there were two men. He tells him a story there. Two men of a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. He had bought it, and he'd raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food. It's, it's Milo, isn't it? Shared its food. It drank from his cup and ate. It slept in his arms. Thankfully, we never went that far. It's like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came from, to the rich man, but the rich man... Uh, refrained from taking his, one of his own cattle or sheep to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David still got integrity in one sense. He's David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, this man must die. You think he's telling him a true story? He thinks he's telling him a true story because they would come to the king and say, what's going to happen in this situation? And he says, the man must die. And then I love it. It just says, you are the man. Now, you, in, these days, if you say you're the man, you know, stick it to the man. If you watch, you know, School of Rock, you're the man, that's like good. But in this case, you're the man is not good. You are the man. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He said, he must pay four times over because he had no pity. Then David said to him, you're the man. Nathan did what? Should have happened. Somebody should have said to David, why didn't you go to war? When he said, I'm not going, he said, why aren't you there? Somebody, when, when, when he asked for Bathsheba's name, they, they'd say, she's married. Somebody said, David, you're married. Somebody somewhere should have said, hey, hang on. But no one did. Jesus says this. I'll comment on the picture underneath in a minute. Jesus says this. If your brother sins against you, go and read it. Show him his fault. Just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. Who's supposed to make sure that you're walking straight and narrow? Each other. Each other. So here's, does anyone know what this picture is? Tiger Woods and? It's a Ryder Cup at the moment, so you should know the other one. Justin Rhodes. Good shout. Now, I'm not sure whether Tiger Woods and Justin Rhodes, but you, if you know the story of Tiger Woods, he was the, the best golfer ever. He was young, he was winning title after title, major after major, 14 majors he'd won. He was getting near to Jack Nicholas's record. But all the time, something was happening in the background that blew. He's going to clubs, he's sleeping with prostitutes, he's bringing women into his house. He's basically living this duplicitous life. And nobody, nobody said, now I'm sure people knew I don't know if Justin Rose knew, I just happened to find this picture. But Justin Rose should have said, Tiger, it's going to take you down. What happened is it all came out. Tiger's not one of major sins. I'm not saying that's the judgment of God, but there's something, if you live, in, if you live with lack of integrity, if you live a hollowed out life, it affects everything. It affects your golf swing, it affects your marriage, it affects everything. We are there to say, I've just observed something's not right. So the first thing then that, that Nathan says after you're the man, says something harsh and then something wonderful. Let's do the harsh thing first. 
He says this, he says, because you've done what you've done, because you've looked at this woman, because you slept with this woman, because you've killed Uriah the Hittite, because you put him in the fiercest fighting and let him fall, and because other men have died, he says this, therefore the sword will never depart from your house, because you've despised me. If you read the last 20 years of David's life, it's horrible. I'm not going to preach in it because it's just a mess. He's, he, he's, he fights with his own, his own sons. His own sons want to kill him. His sons kill his own sons. One of his sons rapes one of his daughters. It's like this small thing of a thought that became an action becomes this tipping point and his whole family is destroyed. I wrote this in my notes. Sin destroys families. The abused become the abusers. The children of the alcoholics become alcoholics. The children of the greedy and proud become self-sufficient and arrogant. And that's what happens for David's family. But let's finish always on a good note. Let's finish with Jesus, which is where we like to go. After he said, the sword's never going to depart from your family, there's real, real consequences. It's not like, oh, Jesus forgives it and it's all done. There are real consequences of sin. If you sin, it will have impact upon you. But the, that is not the end of the story. That's not the last line. This is the last line. This is what, I love this. It says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Read these. I, did I highlight them? Yes, I did. I anointed you. That means I chose you and put my spirit on you. Oh, king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of your enemies, the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you. They're lovely words, aren't they? Say that. Say, I gave you. I gave you. All Israel and Judah. And if this, this is what God is like. If that had not been enough, I'd have given you even more. That's what God's like. He does wonderful, 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 wonderful things. And we can get into the situation where we think, whoa, I'm still not satisfied. I still need a woman. I still need this. I still need that. I still need to look. I still need to touch. I still need to go there. I still need to taste because I'm not satisfied. And God says, if you're not satisfied, ask me and I would have given you more. I'd have given you more. If you're not satisfied, if your life's empty and you feel, man, if only, and you're tempted this way and that, just say, God, give you more, pour yourself on me. I have to go to Jesus because these stories about him. It says this in Romans, it says, If God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him, gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him, graciously give us everything. This isn't some, if you follow Jesus, he's going to fill your bank account with dollars thing. We're not that kind of church. But it is that if there's nothing, if you feel there's something missing, then you look to Jesus and it's there. If you've got guilt, he'll wash it away. If you've got a sense of, I've been hiding this secret, I'm just, I'm, I'm living a double life, I, 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 I'm, I should have been going to, gospel war and I'm really sticking at home in my bed or whatever it is you can go to Jesus and say give me this Terry Virgo writes in his book I've given you my only son I've anointed you with my spirit you're my child my adopted heir I've delivered you from death and given you the kingdom of God as your inheritance 
I've given you love, joy, peace, and purpose. I've gladly, gladly given you all these things. And if you lacked anything, I would have given you more. I love you. So why then are you reaching out to the things that will never bring you life? The story is great because David just, the baby dies. But David weeps and cries and prays and the baby dies. But actually then there's, uh, we haven't time to look into it, but David, the rest of David's life, he feels God's forgiveness. He writes Psalm 51, which is, um, you know, don't treat me as my sins deserve. But I'm not going to finish with that. I'm going to finish with this. This is what David writes. I believe he's written it after this horrible thing has happened. He writes this in Psalm 103. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Slow to get angry. God had, David had every reason for God to get angry with him. And filled with unfailing love. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, they're great words. Sunrise to sunset, as far as you can go, he has removed our sins, our transgressions from us. The Lord is like a father to his children. Tender and compassionate to those who fear him. The worst, you can do, the worst thing you can do with uh, that secret thing is file it away and hope it won't get you. But what happens is when you're faced with the question that I'm about to ask you, you think, I'm not telling. I'm not telling because I'm going to look bad. I'm not telling because it's going to look like, well, I, th- I thought you were the king of Israel, and look, you just messed up. And what we do is we don't tell. We don't admit. We hide it away, and it eats us away. To know that God is gracious and compassionate, that the Bible word is called confession and repentance. God, I'm sorry. I'm not going there again. That's how you start the Jesus life, and that's how you walk it. So I'm going to ask everyone to put, close their eyes. I'm not going to pull anyone to the front. I'm not going to say, if you've got a problem with pornography, please come here, admit it, whatever. I'm not going to do that. But, 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 but sin in, in the broadest sense, just close your eyes with me, please. I'm going to close mine. I don't like it when that preacher says, close your eyes, and he, they don't close theirs. But I just want to ask you, please close your eyes, everyone. I'm going to ask you just to slide up your hand if you need the grace of God. If you think, yeah, there's some stuff in my life. I've been saying I'm busy, but really that big pebble's missing. That God first pebble's missing. It's been a while since I touched my Bible. It's been, uh, in fact, I don't even know how to pray. And I've got my nice face on and it's been a long time since I've gone to war. I want you to put it in your hand. If you've done something in the past or something's been done to you this dark secret and you think if people really knew that about me they'd never love me if you've put on that mask face that says don't ask I'm fine thank you yes very good I'm fine thank you and you know that it's hidden away a a duplicitous fake life 
I want you to put up your hand. That could be a massive thing that just dominates the whole of you. And you could just put your hand up and say, actually, I just know that there's a bit of a smoldering volcano here of, of this or that or the other. So just put your hand up with me, mine's up, because I need the grace of God always. I'm just going to pray for us. Lord, we say, we thank you that you've given. You've given the most precious gift. And right now with our hands up, we say, Lord, we've taken our eyes off that, filled our life with sand. And we come to you say, Jesus, for what's lacking in us, for what we feel is missing, we say, would you give us more of yourself? Lord, we just hear over each of us, we hear that if that had been not enough, if Jesus isn't enough, I'll give you more of him. And we say, pour your spirit on us, Lord. Give us more of you. Give us more of you. We say we want to be ruthless with sin that puts us at our ease and makes us stay in bed and get off the cause of Jesus. And we say, Lord, clear us up and send us out so that we can live the big, bold stuff for you, Lord Jesus. So we just say right now we receive the forgiveness from the tender, compassionate, gracious, merciful God. Say, pour your forgiveness over us, Lord. Every hand that's raised, every person who's scared to raise their hand, I pray let your grace come to us. Lord, as we sing, let your mercy come. Let your goodness come. Okay, heavy stuff. If you feel you need to do some more business... Grab someone who's in your three or your G1C leader or get a coffee with me. There's always space for a coffee. Get a coffee with me and just tell me. I'm, I'm not going to be shocked because I need the grace of God as much, if not more than you. But don't just bury it down and file it top secret and go away. Let's, let's live pure and righteous. Amen. Are we up for that? Let's worship together. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.